0: Welcome to Barron's Live, the Market Watch edition. I'm Rachel Coning Beals, climate change reporter at Market Watch, and I'm pleased today to welcome Aaron Fisher, CEO of EV Passport. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. It's exciting.
0: Thanks. So uh, good to see you. Uh, as you know, uh, President Biden just announced a push for 500,000. EV charging sites uh, using money earmarked from the infrastructure bill. Of course, pending legislation called Build Back Better, uh, which proposes more incentives for EV buying. That remains hung up in Congress. All told, consumers and investors have questions about how fast change will come about and what it will take to hook up the nation for EV charging. Needless to say, challenges and opportunities remain. So, Aaron, today you'll help us explore uh, a closed versus open charging system, home charge versus work or network, you know, on the road charging, behavioral changes about how we drive, how we think about driving, the role of utilities, car makers, oh, so much in this space. So, uh, EV Passport, your company is a venture backed public benefit corporation. Uh, and as you've put it, Aaron, meant to empower and inspire the mass adoption of electric vehicles. Uh, our invest, our listeners, are investors at heart, they always want to know kind of investing ideas. I'll just kind of caution them. You know, you, you are not a stock picker. I am not a stock picker. We're going to really talk about kind of the technology behind this, consumer behavior, what you folks at EV Passport are doing. You know, talk uh, broad for us, though, because that'll help investors make make some decisions. So I know you've got a technology background, Aaron. Uh, you come to this with software and hardware experience, but it actually was a personal experience on the road and trying to recharge that sort of inspired what you do now. Do you mind telling that story?
1: Absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a fun story, you know, that ended up being a blessing in disguise. And it all started uh, a few years ago. I was living in New York City at the time and was fortunate enough to have my grandparents on my father's side. Uh, living in Hartford, Connecticut, which is, you know, right up the highway. It's about two and a half hours. And my grandmother uh, was turning 90 years old, you know, big, big number time for a big birthday. And it was her birthday dinner. And so I decided to go up, right. I, I, I'm a good grandson. I have to, you know, maintain that reputation. And so I decided to, instead of take Amtrak, uh, borrow a buddy of mine had a BMW i3, so I borrow his car. And, uh, you know, now I know he was having some fun with me because he said, just plug it in and it's easy, right? Like you just charge on your way. I said, like, great. Okay. And I start on my journey uh, to get there. And every time I stop to charge this vehicle, it gets worse. Like the experience just gets worse. Uh, it felt like I was in a Mark's brother comedy. <laughs> and I start at what stop at one network and I go to pay. And it's like, we don't take credit cards. You have to download the app. And I'm like, okay. It uh, doesn't say that anywhere here. I have to search in the app store, download an app, uh, create an account. Then I have to load like $20. I'm only trying to pay $5 to fill the car. Takes me, you know, 45 minutes on the first stop. And this just continues every single time I go to charge this car. Long story short, it takes me seven hours to to get there instead of two and a half. And you can imagine my grandmother uh, every few hours calling, have you gotten into an accident? Is it raining where you are? Where are you? Let me look at the traffic report. And I felt horrible. And I get there and, you know, she's not upset. She's very disappointed, right? Like it's it's now way past her dinner and I've missed it. And she asked me, you know, what happened? I said, well, I took an electric car. She's like, I don't understand. You just plug it in. I'm like, that's what I thought. And uh, I felt, honestly, I felt like a fool. I felt that it should be, as easy as getting gas or easier. And so when she asks me, you know, what's wrong, what happened, the gears start turning. And I start thinking through this entire experience. And I knew, you know, very little about electric cars at that point, except for, you know, what we've heard in the world about Tesla a few years ago, and they have a supercharger network and you charge at home. But as someone who couldn't charge at home, as someone who was, you know, taking a very short road trip, all these roadblocks that I encountered along the way, at the end of this journey, not only did I miss my grandmother's dinner, I had five different apps on my phone to charge my car. And I had spent upwards of $60 just in reserved money topping up these different accounts to really only spend about 12 bucks to get there. And so the gears start turning and, and you know, a few weeks later, I decide I'm gonna leave my job and I'm gonna solve this. Because frankly, if the future is really electric and it is, and it's coming now faster than anyone anticipated, it has to be easier than getting gas. And right now, it's harder than even getting gas. And yeah. just for some example there, yeah. I have 12 applications on my iPhone today to charge my, my Tesla.
0: Got it. So EV Passport is born and uh, you operate mostly, I think, in commercial spaces or, or, or multifamily dwellings, right? But you also have some major partners. And I, can, I think that can kind of help tell the story of, How many corporate sites are really sort of taking up this parking charging option? Talk a little bit about that piece of it.
1: Absolutely. So where EV Passport sits is we like to think of ourselves as an infrastructure engagement company. Yes, we are a charging hardware and software provider. We work with developers. We work with major automakers. We just announced a a partnership a few weeks ago with Ford. Uh, But we play in the space, really any parking space that's not a single family home. Charging your home is Charging your car at home is easy. You know, you buy a dumb charger and you plug it in, it goes to your electric bill. Charging a car at a multi-unit development apartment building, at a corporate campus, uh, at a university campus, is infinitely more complex because you don't want the landlord. And as a landlord, you don't want to be on the hook for the electric bill. You want to charge people, right? You want to create a revenue stream. And where we sit is we allow those entities to install Chargers, whether it's, you know, Menkes or Nuveen uh, and and several other large real estate investment trusts and commercial real estate developers uh, to install essentially an asset that creates a revenue stream and adds value to their property. But above and beyond that, what's unique about EV Passport is how easy it is to use. You drive up to an EV Passport charger, you plug in your car, you take your smartphone and you scan that QR code uh, with your camera, just like we've all been doing at a restaurant for the last you know, almost two years now. And it pops up in Safari or Chrome on your phone and you click Apple Pay or Google Pay, and that's it. Your car charges. There's no apps, there's no accounts, there's no nonsense. But beyond that, we decided to take this and think of it as that infrastructure engagement and say, if you're parking on a mall, wouldn't it be cool if you could actually pay for parking and charging a single transaction? If you're living in a building, an apartment building, and you use, you know, an application on your phone to see uh, if you have packages, repair requests, or even if your rent is due, you should be able to see which chargers are available downstairs in that same experience. So instead of having to push people to a different experience, we believe that EV charging should live in play where people are already doing those things.
0: Got it. You know, this is just my little add-on, but you're not the first person to tell me REITs, real estate investment trusts, are sort of potentially where it's at when it comes not just to EV but just sort of other green energy other climate change migration so uh, I'll just I'll just point that out no no comment necessary but uh, but uh, REITs are sort of the the non-obvious perhaps but uh, you know one potential uh, green climate change uh, investment that, that's popped up in a lot of conversations I've, I've had you just alluded to that too so talk, you you've talked about it but I guess um, Back it up just a step. So it's the it's the not having to have so many apps. It's it's having it attached to a to Apple Pay or Google Pay. Is that what we mean when we talk about an open network of of EV charging? Or am I mixing up the terminology here?
1: It, it is and it is not. Um, what you'll notice in the marketplace is a lot of charging networks. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but kind of the 800 pound gorillas in the room, saying things like interoperability. And they say it kind of like, you know, with a wink and a nod, because for them, the way that they built their systems, and some of them were founded, you know, more than a decade ago, for them, it's about locking users into their application, their experience. And so when they say interoperability, they say it in a way where it's about getting more users using other chargers in their application, their experience. And that's how they view an open network. The way we view an open network is kind of the same way that, you know, banks view, openness today, the same way that fintech is viewed as open today versus how it looked in the 90s when you can only use your own bank's ATMs or you could only use your own bank's website and you couldn't like pull that information into you know Robinhood or Mint or anything like that. We view it in a way that technology companies view it and not the way that charging companies traditionally view it. So when we say open, we mean open APIs, open access. You can actually email us and say, I'd like access to every charger on your network to view real-time status, because I want to put that in my map application. I want to put that in my university application, so when I install chargers on a, you know, let's say a UC campus, students can actually see the availability without having to download something else and create a separate account, and more importantly, not having to hand off personal information to more entities than you need to actually fuel your car. Imagine going to a gas station, and before you could, you know, fill that car with gasoline, they said, oh, download this application sign up create an account remember yet another password and then you can fill your card that's not really open
0: yeah thanks for that and i i meant to remind our audience to to send in questions to the chat and we'll ask aaron uh uh mohammed had asked about open technology uh, i was i was leveraging his question uh when i just asked that so you can tell that our listeners are are interested in trying to better define, you know, sort of what open technology looks like. Another audience member wanted to know, would will such standardization be, quote, he asks, adopted or pushed? And by who? Industry or or government? Is is this going to be a, you know, a regulatory matter or the market's going to push it that way? Erin, what do you think?
1: I think it depends on the region that you're talking about. Uh, in the European Union, for example, there are certain regulations around interoperability and roaming agreements. In the United States, it's, in my view, unlikely for that to happen because the largest players are not in favor of it or they're in favor of it in a way that favors them only and not even independent developers or you know, entities that would want access to that data like ride-sharing companies or mapping engines. Um, it's really gonna be the market that pushes it forward. And even companies like Tesla, who say, you know, we're going to open source our patents, I'd like to see them open their network more than just a plug. I'd like to see them open their network as far as the data that comes off of it. Uh, so it's going to be messy and it's going to be interesting to watch, but it's very similar to the early internet age, where you had a lot of siloed you know, internet service providers. You had CompuServe, you had before Netscape, and then you had Netscape, and then you had AOL, and eventually we got to the open internet. And it's going to take some fighting and it's going to take a lot of innovation a lot of pushing uh, but it seems like there's very little appetite from a regulatory perspective to understand what open access really means and push for it if the federal government and even some state governments uh, were able to have a, a more in-depth conversation when they're talking about pushing for 500,000 chargers on what that means what kind what speed what type of location and what open access should look like so it actually impacts and helps society especially disadvantaged communities um then we could see a more you know regulation uh motivation there but we're not having that conversation yet
0: got it you, you've you've just talked about it but in in my mind I, I think about a baseball game so what what inning what stage is the charging market in then based on your sort of internet comparisons etc
1: uh if we want to talk about baseball, maybe yeah. bottom of the second.
0: Bottom of the second.
1: Okay. <laughs> bottom of the second uh, don't quite know where the game is going yet, but you know you got to get to the end of it. Um, and people are going to stand, they're going to watch because it's still exciting. Uh, it. As far as if you want to compare it to the, to the internet, I would say 1994 is where got I place. It. I actually have like a little chart that I keep that says like, where are we in that span uh, against other major points?
0: Got it. I know you guys aren't in the business of, of at home charging, but you're, you're so knowledgeable about, you know, kind of consumer behavior around this. So some of our audience questions, Michael and George are both asking about, you know, if I'm going to buy an EV, certainly I have to think about charging at home if I can. So do, do you have any numbers for us or just sort of a broad sense of where we're at percentage-wise uh, as far as home charging versus network charging? And um, I don't know, just compare the, the, the two a little bit for us. How, maybe how they kind of talk to each other too, right? Like if you've got support in a community, does that change what kind of charge you need at home, et cetera?
1: So a majority of uh, charging at home is known as level two, which is effectively a similar amount of power to a washer-dryer. So it's incredibly easy to install, it's very cost-effective. And because of that, you'll notice that about 80% of all electric vehicle charging today happens at home. Now, that number is actually changing. It, it, it was a little bit higher about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and it's continuing to go down. It's expected to be uh, around you know, low 70s in the next few years. And that's because the price of vehicles are coming down. So as the price of vehicles comes down, You actually have individuals that don't necessarily have a single family home. They might live in a condo. They might live in an apartment building and need to charge. And so the market is shifting from saying you have to charge at home to you should charge at home because it's cost effective and easy. But it's really difficult to charge at home if your building doesn't have a charger, right? And so some of our customers, for example, one of the most fascinating statistics to me is we have a customer... Uh, down San Diego, and they had installed dumb chargers. And by dumb chargers, I mean, they're non networked They have no Wi-Fi. They have no Bluetooth. There's nothing about them that says they can connect to the internet, which means that they can't build a driver. They're just plugs. Imagine just plugging your iPhone in the parking garage. That's what it is. And they installed a handful of these. And that was great because of compliance. And people were coming and they were plugging in their plug-in hybrids and their full electric cars. They decided to swap them and install EV Passport because they were on the hook for the electric bill. They were paying thousands of dollars a year in effectively free fuel for tenants. And that change over to, okay, you're going to now have to pay for your fuel. It's still dramatically cheaper than a gasoline car is really interesting to me because it also creates a, a better expectation of reliability and service and also the ability to understand when a charger is available. There are a number of non-network chargers out there, and that's where I actually think a, a large part of the market was a few years ago, because you would just install them. There wasn't a cost-effective solution uh, to install a network charger that could earn revenue and you know have customers. But now, with AV Passport, we're in the pricing area where we can actually compete with those non-network chargers you would pick up at Home Depot, but still create revenue not be on the hook for the electric bill. Because we're seeing that utilization of these chargers is is skyrocketing. You know, in apartment buildings, people will actually wait and watch for a charger to become available, go downstairs, move their car, plug in for five, six hours overnight, just so the next day they don't have to go hunt for a charger. And in those situations, we need more of these things.
0: Got it. The next question is from Mark. I'll, I'll actually take this one, Aaron, because he, he wants to know, how can investors begin to play this up and... Uh, And you know, he wants to know about the growth in the network for charging stations. So, not a recommendation. I'm, I too am not a stock picker. I'm simply reminding that there is a growing roster of publicly traded companies in the space. Aaron, you compete with some of them. Um, Also, at least one analyst firm, Cohen, downgraded some of these stocks in November, citing valuation. So, it remains an interesting space. It needs some research, as always. So, let me give a few names again, just kind of a list. Beam Global, Blink Charging, Volta, ChargePoint. And the one I want to talk about, and that leads to a question for you, Erin. So Rivian Automotive, one of the biggest IPOs of the past year, uh, though its stock has come off some of its high-flying early price, uh, it's got its own charging network sort of included in its sales plan. So, Erin, that's my question to you. How can the manufacturers, the automakers, continue to play a role in, 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 in charging and, in, in building out a network.
1: Whether it's Rivian or, or Ford or GM or, or any of these automakers that have to think about this, what they really need to do is make it easier to charge. Automakers are inherently, at least legacy automakers, they're car companies, right? Their job is to make a vehicle, put tires on it, get it out the door to a dealership or directly to a consumer. Historically, they have not been involved in any type of fueling network. I mean, if if they had been, this would be a different conversation that would have less doubt among legacy automakers. But what they need to do is focus on software and they need to focus on open networks and interoperability and giving consumers not only the tools to say it's incredibly easy to charge a car, but also the confidence at the dealer network when it's sold and at the continuing relationship level to actually make it easier. And I will say that most charging networks out there are not playing well with automakers. And so automakers have a really tough time. So when Rivian says, we're gonna, you know, put some chargers in the ground, I don't blame them. Look at Tesla. They decided to build their own charging network because they said, we can make this easier. We can make this better. Uh, Automakers need to push charging providers to be actually open. You need to be able to hop into the dashboard of any electric car, and see where chargers are around them yeah. and be able to go to it, plug in and charge. And there have been some, you know, technologies that have moved forward. One is called Plug In Charge with Electrify America and, and Volkswagen, which is working with the Mustang Mach-E from Ford actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it needs to be at a wider scale. And that type of education needs to come from automakers as well. Right now, as someone who, you know, founded and is leading a charging network, we found, we feel like we're, the primary educators on charging. Uh, and automakers need to pick up that mantle as well and say, we're gonna produce materials, we're going to push uh, charging network providers to have the type of tech that we want. Right now, it's kind of a who needs each other more situation, right? And it should be you know automakers leading the charge, so to speak, uh, pushing for openness and integration into their vehicles because that's where a consumer is going to be looking to charge from is when they're inside their car,
0: right? Just a reminder to listeners: please uh, keep sending in a few questions. We'll we'll get to as many as we can. Let's talk a little bit about behavior and and more importantly, behavioral change because when speed isn't quite there, where it's it's sort of a one for one swap with with a gas station as far as rolling in, fueling up, pulling out. But you and I were talking recently about. Um, you see scope for maybe clusters of charging around obviously eating and coffee. There's there's something sort of nice with the timing of eating on the road and, and getting a charge. So anyway, talk about road trips and, and kind of how you see behavior and, and, and changing behavior.
1: Absolutely. We were just talking about this as, as you alluded to last week, where it really comes down to the behavior change that comes from the information coming from governments, from automakers, from charging networks, uh, from even, you know, how does Google Maps display information or Apple Maps or Waze? And it comes down to, you know, miles per hour of charge. More often than not, like we have a customer come to us. I have friends that come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about getting this car. And they ask like, how long does it take to charge? That's really the wrong question to ask the question that should always be asked is how many miles can I get per hour of charge into this vehicle depending on the charger type? And that's the type of information we provide. And that plays into behavior change because no one ever asks me how long, like what's the distance on this gasoline car? They ask how many miles per gallon can I get? And that plays into how consumers can think about charging the electric vehicle, whether it's a DC fast charger or a level two destination charger, which is what you see at, uh, you know, rest or where you see at restaurants and multi-unit developments and workplaces and universities. And so, our view, at least from a charging network perspective and, and a vehicle driver myself, is that most of the time people are going to charge on level two. They're going to charge in their single-family home. They're going to charge at their apartment building. They might charge at the workplace. If you're a student or a faculty member, you're going to charge your car when you get to. The university campus. It's just if there's a charger there, you're gonna plug in, you're gonna leave it there until you're done, then you're gonna leave and you're gonna be topped off. We don't wait for our iPhones to die uh, before we plug them in, at least most of the time. And charging a car should be viewed the same way. There's definitely room in the marketplace for GC fast chargers. We do them as well, but they really are for rest stops and road tripping, and they are great. I mean, I'll admit, I go sometimes entire week. Uh, just using fast chargers because I don't have the time uh, necessarily where I'm not home. I'm road tripping between different cities and a hotel may not have an L2 fast charger, which is unfortunate, and they should. So there is room in the marketplace for them, but they're incredibly expensive to use from a driver perspective. From a landlord, they're very expensive to operate. From an infrastructure perspective, from a utility, they're expensive to install. And they do have detrimental effects on the grid. And so when the federal government says, we're going to install 500,000 chargers, I hear kind of alarm bells and say, great, where are these going? Are these DC fast chargers where people think that I'm just going to replace the fuel in my vehicle and go from gas to electric and just go to a station and charge up and I don't have to worry about anything? DC fast chargers should always be viewed as a fail safe. They are a, a road trip and worst case scenario. Like, oh no, I have to go top up because I'm late to a meeting or, you know, I didn't stop at home last night or whatever that reason might be. My hotel didn't have one. But those situations, 99% of the time could be solved by putting more level two chargers in the ground, which really just creates more revenue and more opportunity for small businesses.
0: Got it. Alex was asking if, if, if on your radar, Aaron, right now tax incentives and tax rebates tend to be attached to the vehicles, I think, you'll correct me. He's wondering if, they'll, if you sense there'll be tax, maybe state level, maybe federal tax incentive around charging, meaning you know, for a level two or, or something to sort of inspire people to, to continue to upgrade uh, their charger. Do you, do you see any sort of incentive uh, arena there?
1: There actually already are a massive amount of uh, tax Mm -hmm. at the federal level and then cash back at the state and utility level uh, for the installation of EV charging assets of all speeds. So, for example, in California, Southern California has a great program through the utility level uh, that allows the installation of what's called make ready programs, which is essentially all the infrastructure that's needed from the street to where the charger's being installed, and then you know putting that charger in and operating it, that's on you. But all of that infrastructure that's required can be covered by utility programs. Uh, Con Ed in New York is another great example. They will do the same thing. Obviously New York City, uh, very old and requires a lot of infrastructure upgrades. So it's good to see those uh, out and about. And they're something that we interact with on a daily basis. Um, there's a lot of money out there for installing EV chargers. And frankly, it's, it's going pretty quickly. Uh, now that the build back better part two is stalled, at least it seems, and hopefully it'll be revived. This is something that we encourage people to say, you know, get on it, get, get chargers in the ground. You want to future-proof your asset. You want to future-proof your building. You want to make sure that you're not stuck paying for something, you know, five, six years from now, because people literally will not rent from you as a building owner, or people will actually not show up to your coffee shop because there's no chargers. You want to make sure that you're ready for the future. We didn't wait till you know 2006 to put in Wi-Fi in a hotel. You started it much earlier.
0: Are you worried at all then? Or maybe not, I shouldn't say worried. Are you monitoring at all? Right now, we incentivize, as you just pointed out, chargers. We incentivize EV ownership. The other side of the coin is that a lot of states, municipalities rely on gasoline tax uh, for for road maintenance, et cetera. So will we reach a point, are we already there, where maintenance and other, you you know, EV charging eventually may present a tax opportunity for government, right? So as consumers, help us walk through that sort of potential flip or what will happen there?
1: I imagine it'll happen eventually. Um, right now, government should not look at EV drivers or you know, operators and see dollar signs for taxation revenue because it'll slow the adoption. Yeah, It really comes down to when that flip does occur, it needs to be done incredibly carefully. Um, it needs to be handled um, at a level that allows input from a lot of different parties. You know, For example, one of the cheapest... Least vehicles you can get right now on the road is a Nissan Leaf. Yeah, that is you can get a Nissan Leaf in California sometimes for about fifty dollars a month to lease a brand new, incredibly safe, top pick vehicle. And so, options like that, and and you know EV chargers in, installed in communities that you know can help improve the quality of life. You don't want to make sure that you're also not taxing those individuals or certain demographics unfairly because you see dollar signs and you you think it might start flipping, uh, from gasoline to electric at an opportunity where, you know, it, it starts starving, uh, the city or state of tax revenue. It needs to, it's, it's going to be a very careful dance. I think it's years away, frankly, um, because like it's too early for that to, to not slow adoption.
0: Understood. Ian wants to know if there are any other countries, um, who sort of lead and and do they have systems in place or just behavior in place that the U S might get some inspiration from? And let me leverage my own follow-up question onto that because it seems sort of forward-looking. So in addition to, can we learn from other countries, you know, what are you sort of most optimistic about right now as we're looking ahead to 2022 and 23 and, and, and beyond?
1: I am most optimistic that today, uh, more often than not i don't have to explain to someone the benefit of going electric okay because automakers are finally you know they've stopped talking about electric cars and they've moved to selling electric cars beyond just tesla you got the E is out ID. Four is out there's a porsche that's electric it, it it's an opportunity that has changed so much in the last 12 months alone um so i love that consumers are saying my next car is going to be electric And a majority of millennials actually say that their next vehicle is going to be electric. And so I'm just excited and inspired by society as a whole, where that is where people want to go. They're not being led there by regulations necessarily. Automakers are making really exciting vehicles. Uh, It's more cost effective. It's better for the environment. People... Say, once you go electric, you never go back. You know, you can't exactly fill a gasoline car at night while you sleep. Um, so people are excited about vehicles and mass for the first time in decades. And that's what really, you know, warms my heart. Uh, as far as other countries and what they're doing, China is a leader in electrification and renewable energy. Um, and there's a lot that we could look at there to see how they're encouraging interoperability. Or even small behavior change things like when a gasoline car parks in an EV charging space, how do you handle that type of situation? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Europe, of course, is doing some really interesting stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, the United States is a different market and it needs to be treated as such. So everything that other countries or other regions are doing should be taken with a grain of salt and made sure that they actually work in the United States, and not just mimicking them Definitely. for the sake of mimicking.
0: Understood. Understood. Well, Aaron, this has been great. I mean, we could probably go on and on and and maybe we'll have you back on as this market continues to evolve. Uh, Happy holidays to you. And thanks for being here. And to our listeners, we hope you tune in tomorrow. Uh, Barron's Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Alex Yule will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.